1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. And it is, it's 10 o'clock. We're going, we're going to get out of here in time to have some time of fellowship before small groups, I hope. So uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, we will, I'm not going to read this right now. We're going to read it as we study it. But, but we're going to look at, if you're visiting with us today... Uh, I, I'll say, for, forgive me on the front end. Interesting Sunday to come. We're walking through 1 Corinthians. And what, we, what, we, what we're going to talk about today is, is, is uh, shocking. It's, it's absurd. It's repulsive. Nobody wants to talk about it. And, I, I'm, and, and, and it's offensive. And I'm not even talking about the sin that brought it on. What I'm talking about is church discipline. We live in a culture that doesn't want anything to do with discipline. Doesn't want anything to do, especially with church discipline. And yet it's a biblical mandate, as we'll see today. We, we, have, we have really, in many ways, adulterated the Bible, perverted the Bible to the point where we love anybody, no matter how they're living, anything goes, and you can just bring it in the church and we'll just keep loving you. Do whatever you want to do, and, and if you don't like it at this church, just do whatever you want to do and go to another church and just start doing it there. And, and that's not biblical. You know, the, the church discipline has essentially become extinct in our churches. And I want to address it today. Paul address, addresses it. It is an absolutely, it, it is one of the key foundational fundamental reasons why the church exists to discipline brothers and sisters in Christ, to bring them back, to draw them back. Accountability. And, 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 and the, but, but how, I, I get it, it's been done wrongly, we're going to talk about that, but, but just because something's not done biblically doesn't mean you throw it out. What we need to do is learn how to do it rightly. Don't just throw it out. Learn how to do it rightly because it, it's biblical. But we need to take sin seriously. We need to grow to where we love God more than we love our sin. We need to grow to the point that we love, where we love one another enough to come alongside of one another and, and, and confront them when it's needed, when it's necessary. And we're going to put down the groundwork for that. And if you're visiting with us today, I pray that you'll see the love. I pray that you'll want to be a part of a group of people that, are, that love each other enough to come and draw someone back to the goodness of God. To the, to the commands of God, because they're good. They refresh the soul. It's good for somebody to say, whoa, hey, you're about to fall off a cliff and die. Come back. That's good. That's good. You know, we're going to look at some tough things in here. Paul says, I'm going to hand him over to Satan to destroy his flesh so that you'll save his soul. How do you like to hear that on your first time you come to a church? Not God loves you, but we may hand you over to Satan to destroy your flesh to save your soul. What in the world is he talking about? Well, let's, let's, let's jump in. Let's jump in. I want to give us a couple of overarching principles and then address some kind of sub-principles that you see here in 1 Corinthians 5. And We're going to read this passage through as we study it. We're literally going to go verse by verse. And uh, um, we'll see what Paul has to say. The first thing I want us to see here about church discipline, you see it on your handout. In order to handle church discipline issues properly and to protect the purity of the gospel and the body of Christ, we need an attitude towards sin that is biblically accurate. 
It starts with your attitude. It starts with our attitude towards sin. An attitude towards sin that's biblically accurate. Look, look at verse 1 to set the context. What, what brought this on? What was going on? What is the situation where Paul would address this? That he would deal with this so strongly? He says, it is actually reported among you that there is, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. The, the situation here is that a man is having an ongoing, intimate, let's say intimate relationship with his stepmother. Okay? Ongoing, continual, unrepentant relationship with his stepmother. You, you can fill in the blank with other things. Paul's going to make it clear there were a lot of other things that could have warranted the same uh, discipline. And, and the Greek picks this up well. And, I, mean, I mean, the English picks it up, the Greek well, it says has. This is a continuous, ongoing sin. This was not a one-off sin. This was not a mistake. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, you who are spirit, if anyone is caught up in sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That word caught up means surprised. I think there have been times in all of our lives where you would say you got caught up in something, you were surprised, and you did something that you wished you hadn't done. That's not this. This is continuous, ongoing sin. And notice, the church's reaction is what Paul addresses here. It's the church's reaction to this, this is what Paul deals with. He never, ever, ever speaks to the man here. He doesn't call out the individual. He doesn't, he doesn't address him specifically. All he does is he addresses the church. Why? Because this is the church's problem. When one of us is sinning in a continual, ongoing basis, it's the church's problem. We're a body. And their attitude toward this problem was the real problem. Look at verse 2. You have become arrogant. Again, you're going to see that word arrogant all through 1 Corinthians. All through 1 Corinthians. Just here in the last chapter, verse 4 through 6, he says it. Verse four, eight, chapter 4, 18, he says it. And here he says it. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Instead of mourning over the sin, instead of dealing with the sin, what they were arrogant about their tolerance of the sin. They, they felt like they were superior because they would have the arrogance to allow somebody to do this and then come worship in their church. And Paul says, that's arrogant. You, you ought to be mourning. Tolerance, is, a tolerance of sin is not a blessing. Tolerance of sin is arrogance. Arrogance. They would have thought that they were above everyone else, enlightened more than others, because they allowed this to go on. And how does a church get to a place where they no longer mourn sin, that they actually boast about their tolerance? And it's when exactly what happened here, when, when the, Corinthian, the Corinthians had mixed the theology of this word with the ideologies and the theologies and all the ideas of the world, they had mixed them. They were okay with bringing the things of the world into the church. And they had a blend of the world and the word. We've seen that. We've seen that as we set the context, context of, this, of this book. They had refused to make a clean break from the philosophies with the so-called truths of this world, with all the ideas of this world. They had refused to make a clean break and they would bring them into the church. 
and this is what happened. And unfortunately, the same thing has happened today in our churches. I, I, I heard the other day of a mega church who the man, a man had left his wife for another man and the church continued to let that man serve in the children's ministry. They were even sitting on the front row of a Christmas service and the guy, the pastor, was bragging about the unity in the body. The man left his wife for another man. And they're going to sit up there and preach that they're tolerant of that. That's arrogance. Arrogance. It's happening today. The same thing happens today. We, we, I hear it all the time in Christians. We have bought into lies that sound biblical. They're just not biblical. They sound good, but they're not biblical. And I, and I gave you some on, on your handout there. The first one, I want to give the worldly objection to biblical discipline... And then the biblical truth. The worldly objection would be church discipline is legalistic. I'm sure you've heard that one before. It's legalistic. The reality is the church discipline, according to the Bible, church discipline is love. It's loving. And I agree. When handled wrongly, it can become legalistic. I get that. But that's the problem with the way you handle it, not with the principle. Not with the discipline. Church discipline is not a witch hunt. It's not where we sit looking for things to go after in someone's life. We don't sit there dissecting each other's lives, hoping to find something. But when it's there, we deal with it. Look, look at the Hebrews 12, 6. Talking about how the Lord disciplines us. It says that the Lord, it's, the Lord disciplines, Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines whom He loves. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. If you went on and read 7 through 11 in your, in, in your own time, it says that, the, that, an, that an illegitimate son, you would consider yourself an illegitimate son if you did not get disciplined by the Lord. And that, that discipline brings back what? The fruit of righteousness. It's a positive thing. The reality is Christ's commands in this word are good. They're good. And to obey them is for our good, is it not? Did God not give us this word for our good? Absolutely He did. Therefore, if someone wanders from them, would it not be loving to bring them back to the very thing that's good for them? I mean, if your child was going to grab a, a, a pot of boiling water on the stove, would you just sit back and say, Let me, I'll, I'll teach him a lesson. I don't want to be unloving. Uh, he's his own man. No, you wouldn't. Why? Because you love them. Why, why would we not see somebody willfully wandering away from this word and not draw them back? It's good. And if we're honest, we've been duped into thinking that church discipline is not loving when the, the biblical reality is to not come alongside a brother or a sister when they're willfully, wantily sinning is unloving. To allow them to do that which clearly violates the word of God is a, is a violation of biblical love. And that's the church's problem. Until we love one another enough, until we love the Lord the way we're called to, until we hate sin, we will ignore this. And guess what? This is virtually ignored in churches today. Ignored. You will never see a billboard we, to grow a church. Hey, we discipline. I'm going to drive right on by that one. We discipline. 
The second lie, it's their own business. I hear it all the time. Oh, that's their business. That's their business. Well, guess what? The Bible says we're one body. We're one body. So what does that mean? Is your, is your right hand, what your right hand does, is that your left hand's business? Absolutely it is. Is what your left eye does your right eye's business? Absolutely it is. We're one body. It, it, the world would say, what I do is my business. Well, guess what? When you became a part of the body of Christ, what you do became my business. Because what you do effect, offends me and it affects me. And what I do affects your ability to share the gospel just like how you live your life affects my ability to share the gospel. We're one body. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. One body. We're one body. What you do is my business. What I do as your pastor is your business. The reality is, and we won't go there, the Bible makes it very clear, you're a coward. It is cowardice to not confront a brother or a sister who is willfully, wantonly sinning. You're a coward. That's what the Bible would say. Look, look even in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good, of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as, in, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, hey, you look at the same principles in Galatians 5, 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin in your life, a little bit of sin in the body of this church, unchecked, will destroy this whole body. Impact this whole body. It's my business. Sin in the church is our business. It's our business. The third thing you see, you hear it all the time, not my right to judge. Who am I to judge? Paul would have a little something, something to say about that. Paul would say, according to the Bible, let's go back to the Bible, it is our right to judge. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with more, more immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But, I, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. You see that this person's action has brought into question his salvation. Continuous, unrepentant, willful sin in our lives is it's right to wonder, is this a really a believer? Is this guy really a believer? With any so-called brother, you don't associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler. Look at this. Not even to eat with one. Don't even eat with him. For what do I have with judging outsiders? He's talking about outside the church. Do you not judge those who are within the church? We have completely flipped that. We are very, very good at judging those outside the church and those inside the church we completely ignore and let them live however they want to live when the reality is I ought to be judging those inside the church and let God judge those outside the church. They got enough trouble coming to them with God's judgment. They don't need me adding to it. He says, but those who are outside, God judges. Look what he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The world will run very quickly to Matthew 7. Don't judge, lest you'll be judged. Sounds good. 
till you get to verse 5 of that same chapter. And he says, no, you remove the plank from your own eye, and then you, then, and then, and then you'll be able to remove the respect from your brother's eye. What he's saying is, if I'm, if I'm in an adulterous relationship, I got no business talking to somebody else about an adulterous relationship. If I'm battling with idolatry, I got no business confronting you about your idolatry. If I'm a swindler, I don't have any business talking to you about being a swindler. What he says, he says, stop being a swindler, and then you can go talk to your brother or your sister in Christ about their swindling. We will judge. 1 Corinthians 2.15, he, he, he deals with the th same thing. He says, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is, a spirit, is appraised by none. As a spiritual person, I'm constantly judging things. Constantly. Appraise means to judge a value, to give a value. It is our right to judge. But, but how we do it is the point, and we'll get to that. Lastly, I hear this all the time. People will leave the church. People will leave the church. You're right, people will leave the church. But guess what? This is not my church to build. Not my church to build. That's not my job. Not my job to fill this place. That's God's job. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. There's only two times in the Gospels that the word church is mentioned. Matthew 16, 18, when he gives a very foundational point upon the confession of Christ, I will build my church. Jesus will build his church. And then you have Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and guess what the context there is discipline within church. And we'll be there in a minute. Discipline. Only two times it's mentioned in the Gospels by Jesus. Number one, the foundational confession about what the church is going to be built on, that is, who is Jesus? And the number two on the hit list, to discipline brothers and sisters in Christ. That teaches me something. Part of the reason we exist, part of the reason we gather regularly, and as Hebrews says, why we don't forsake the assembling, is so we can encourage one another, and we can encourage people who have wondered to come back to that which is good for them. And there is a habit to not assemble regularly. To not gather regularly. Why? Because I know I got sin. You know you have sin. And we just don't want to deal with it. So we move on. So we can live how we want to live. He says don't let each other do that. Love each other enough not to, be, not to do that. Don't be arrogant. He says don't be arrogant and stand in judgment over the person. But, but don't be ignorant and let them disobey either. Don't violate love. Humbly submit. I humbly submit myself to the word. And when needed... I will confront. Is it fun? No. Is it something I look forward to? Absolutely not. Does it always go well? Absolutely not. I've confronted people when it went well. I've confronted people when it didn't go well. I have been the one, I will admit, I've been the one who has failed sometimes in how even I confronted them. But that doesn't mean we throw it out. And Paul says, point blank in 1 Corinthians, remove the person from your midst. He says it multiple times. Look at verse 3. He gets stronger than that. He says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged. Listen to that. I've already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you assembled, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What in the world is Paul saying here? And, and what gives him the right to say this? What is he saying and what gives him the right? And, and I, want to try to, I want to try to address that. Paul clearly is asserting his authority here. And guess what? We have that same authority. He is standing on the word of God. When I stand on the word of God, I bear the same authority that Paul bared. You go all the way back to Matthew 18. Look with me in Matthew 18, 18 through 20, and I'll show you a picture that we have tremendous authority as a body. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two, or th if, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. You know what he's saying there? He says, when, when we confront according to the word of God and not our personal preferences or agendas, then we carry with us the authority of Christ. What we're doing is we're declaring sin to be sin based on the authority of God's word. That's how Paul can act so strongly. And he says there, Matthew 18, Jesus says, in the context of addressing sin and confronting sin, he says, if two or three of you agree that it is sin, then guess what? You can put my stamp on it. It's sin. And can I caution us, please? Matthew 18, verse 20 is probably one of the most misquoted verses, misapplied verses in all the Bible. It's not saying where two or three are gathered, you know God's presence is there. That's not the context. He's saying where two or three in an agreement on someone's sin. Guess what? When I have my quiet time, it's just me and the Lord. Is the Lord not there? Absolutely, He's there. He's talking about, if look, if, if such and such is doing something, and Todd and I are in, both have looked at it, have prayed through it, and are in agreement that this is sin, and we go and confront that person, guess what the Lord is saying? I'm with you, Chris and Todd. You go there with absolute authority. You go with authority and confront. That's what he's saying. Jesus is essentially saying, I've got your back. Don't worry about it. I've got your back. And we, we're not judging sin when we call it what it is. Please hear me say that. God has already rendered it sin. The judgment has been rendered. When, when I marry somebody, I say, by the power invested in me by the state of Florida, I pronounce you man and wife. I'm, only, I'm doing that on behalf of the state of Florida. The state of Florida has given me, through my ordination and my licensing, full authority and power to marry people on their behalf. They trust me. That's dangerous. And the same thing is true here. We are all representatives of this word. When we take this word with us, we are representing God. You go all the way back to Genesis 3. That's what it means to bear His image. We, we represent Him. And verse 4 of chapter 5 makes that very clear. He says, with the, in the name of our Lord Jesus. You know what Paul did this? He did it in the name of our Lord Jesus. And, and look at that. He says, in the power of our Lord Jesus. 
He didn't do this on his own. He didn't, this wasn't his own little person agenda. It wasn't just that he had his feelings hurt. He was acting on behalf of the Lord. And the question is, becomes, well, why bother? It's dirty, it's messy, they're probably not going to hear. Why bother? Why is it important? Why, why would I want to get my hands dirty? And, and verse 5 is the answer. To save their soul. To save their soul. I, I, I'm all for security of salvation. I hear me. John 10, all throughout it, I get that. But there's a lot of people in our churches that quite frankly think they're saved and they're not saved. The Bible is very clear about that as well. Paul says it here. So-called brother. By the way you're living, by the way you're acting, Paul says, I don't know if you're a brother or not. I don't know. And, and, and the goal, what does Paul say? He says the goal... The goal, the motives for church discipline, verse 5 is full. That verse is full. The motives of church discipline, it is the good. It is for the good of the individual involved. The good of the individual involved. Paul says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. That's good. Discipline is for our good. And guess what? All throughout the Bible, we see pictures of God using Satan to bring about good. God is sovereign over Satan, okay? He's sovereign over it. I give you Job. I give you 2 Corinthians 12, a, a messenger of Satan, the thorn in the flesh. God's turning, God using Satan to bring about good. Look at 1 Timothy 1.20. It should come up on your screens. Th these are not isolated things. Among these are Himenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught... Not to blasphemy. That's good. That's good. Being taught not to blasphemy, that's good. Paul handed him over. Again, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, Paul had this thorn in the flesh, and he said it was a messenger of Satan. What was the good? To teach Paul not to rely on self. To teach Paul to exalt in weakness. To teach Paul not to be self-reliant. And the point, the point that we, have to, that we have to keep in mind, the point, the goal, the desire of church discipline is redemptive. It is always redemptive. It's not punitive. It's to bring them back. It's to redeem them. The goal of church discipline is to draw them back. That's what I mean by redemptive. It is to draw them back. And in Paul's day... They had nothing but the fellowship with their fellow believers. They did not have 18 other churches that they passed on the way to their church that they would just pick up their stuff and go to another church and keep doing it. That happens all the time today. All they had was church fellowship. And Paul is saying, take away the thing that they need most in order to draw them back. In order for them to see the folly of their sin. But it's not only for the good of the believer, it's for the purity of the church. It's for the purity of the church. I, I read it earlier, verses 6-8, through eight, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Unchecked, undisciplined, undealt with sin is destructive for this every single one of us in here. It is destructive. It is destructive. Look with me at Ephesians 5, 1-5. Look what Paul calls them. Uh, uh, Paul calls them. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
Listen to this. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's our motivation. Look at this. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with uncertainty, this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Very clear. And see, we, we have this idea of purity is, hey, how close can I get to sin without sinning? That's not purity. Purity is how far away can I get from sin so that it's not even named among me. To, to the point where if anyone mentioned sin and, and associated it with my life, they ought to say, that sounds so absurd that you would even mention that in Chris's life. That's the most absurd thing I've heard of. The reality is most, most people live lives so when sin is mentioned, you're like, yeah, that's possible. That's possible. He says, get away from it, not even named among you. And in Ephesians 5, he says the same thing. He's talking about, hey, husbands, love your wives as your own body. Here's the deal. Any good done to your spouse is good done to you. Why? Because you're one body. Conversely, any bad done to your spouse is bad done to you. Why? Because you're one body. Unity. It's all throughout the Word. And to refuse to engage in church discipline jeopardizes the health of the church. To refuse to do this jeopardizes the health of the church. And, and what we need is an attitude towards sin that is biblical. I, I shared Wednesday night. Suppose I let a venomous snake go in your house. You knew a venomous, deadly, poisonous snake was in your house. Suppose you searched all day and it got to be bedtime and you hadn't found it yet. What are the chances you put the kids into bed and say, hey, y'all sleep well, we'll, 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 we'll pick this up in the morning. We'll put off the search till in the morning and we'll have some breakfast and we'll go looking for that snake in the morning. Why? Because you know that thing is going to kill you if it bites you. My question is, why would we be more di diligent about pursuing a snake than we would about sin? Why would we be more diligent about pursuing a snake than sin? It's because our attitude toward that snake and his venom are stronger than our attitude toward sin. And it ought not to be that way. And the, the purity of the church, what is our attitude toward sin? And I think if we were honest, our attitude towards sin could probably, in most of our lives, be ratcheted up a few notches. Our disdain towards sin, the way we're repulsed by sin, the way we hate, it could probably be stand to be ratcheted up a little bit. We, we need a biblical attitude towards sin. But not only that, we need an approach to unrepentant believers that is biblically accurate. Not only do we need an attitude towards sin that's biblically accurate, we need an approach towards unrepentant believers. And again... Please remember, we're, we're, dis, we're dealing with unrepentant, ongoing sin here. This is not somebody who is struggling with a particular sin. This is an unrepentant, just willful, just throw, throw away the reins and jumping headlong into sin. That's what we're dealing with here. There is a difference 
between struggling to overcome a sin and wantfully, wantonly and willingly sinning. Big difference. I'm sure there's many of us, all of us in here, if we were honest, are battling with certain things in our lives. But the point is, are you battling? Are you fighting? That's the difference. And again, we're talking about believers. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 11. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. He, verse 12, for what do I have with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? We're talking about believers. And, and Paul says, you know where my reign ends? My reign is over church, the church membership. The importance of church membership is so that we know who's opening themselves up to be disciplined and who's not. Who's a part of this body? Church membership. God is going to take care of unbelievers' sin. There is coming a day if you do not... If you do not have your sins washed clean by the blood of Jesus alone, there is coming a terrible, horrifying day when you're going to stand before God and He is going to cast you into eternal hell if you remain in your sin. And yet He sent His Son to die on the cross so that that would not have to happen. That's the truth. Unbelievers' fate is going to be bad enough. And, and Matthew 18 outlines for us the process for dealing with sin, with church discipline. And, and please know this. We're dropped into the middle of 1 Corinthians 5. This, Paul did not find out about this yesterday and just skip to, to, to step 4. This is an ongoing, long-standing issue that they've already walked through all these other steps. And Paul says, look, boom, here's the result. Okay, so please know that we're dropped into the middle of 1 Corinthians 5 and the story and what's going on with this believer. So look, look with me back at Matthew 18. And you see here the process, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. See the language there? Won your brother. That's good. We like to win. You're talking about somebody who's very, very competitive. My children love to wrestle with me every night. Guess who wins? I let them think they've won. Ultimately, Daddy wins. People say, well, there's going to be a day he's going to whoop you behind. Not if I can help it. Not if I can help it. I'm, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So, so what's the process? So suppose we have the courage to do this. How do we do this? First thing is a private conversation. Private conversation. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. In private. If he listens to you, you have won him over. The goal is for it to be cleaned up right here. That's the goal. Cleaned up right here. And, and hear me, church, hear me. We've all been guilty of this. This right here is why gossip is so devastating. This right here is why when you hear of a sin in another person's life, when you go ask four or five other people that are not the person that it's dealt with, that it's not dealing with, you know, this is why it's so devastating. 
It could have been cleaned up by us going to this one individual and dealing with it. But now four or five people know about it. And guess what? They're going to tell four or five more. And they're going to tell four or five more and four or five more. When the reality is the situation could be over, done with, washed under the blood. And people are still telling people about that brother's sin. When if we would have just gone to this person and dealt with it, only you and him would have known. And the goal, I, I, I forgive my... My, I'm trying to stay calm, but, but I see everywhere this is destroying people's lives. The way we're not handling this biblically is destroying people's lives. And it's destroying the church. And it's destroying the testimony of the church. People know, I, get, you, I can't tell you how many times somebody has come up to me in the church, even pastors, and said, hey, did you hear about such and such? Well, not until, not until you just told me. See, what did that do for me with this other person? I'm tainted now. I'm tainted. I'm tainted. I can't tell you how many times that happened, and I'll pick up the phone and call that person and say, Hey, hey, what's going on? Is it, Chris, that's ridiculous. That, okay. And guess what? That person, now that person walks around town wondering who else knows about something that they don't have been business knowing about. And people are walking around town passing on lies. People are walking around town talking about stuff that was dealt with under the blood years ago and they're still talking about it. All because we didn't have the courage and the love to go to a brother. There's people sitting here right now who live under that cloud every day of their life wondering who knows that shouldn't know. That's wrong. It's wrong. It's shameful. It's destructive. That's not how we were meant to live. So gossip is have the courage to go to somebody. Deal with it. But, but if, suppose that person doesn't listen. Look at verse 16. Take one or two other people with you. You don't quit. You don't give up. You go back to them with one or two people. And this is based on Deuteronomy 19.15. For the sake of time, we're not going there. But this is so you can't get into a he said, she said fight. The facts will be clear. We will know what's going on. It is to confirm the story. It is to validate what is going on. But again, you see the goal? It's to keep the circle as small as possible. So now, prayerfully, this brother or this sister repents. Only three people know. The sinner and the two people that came against him. To confront him, that's bad language. That came to him. Three. Not 50, not 100. If they don't listen still, what does he say in verse 17? Tell it to the church. You, you, you do see here that I'm third on the list. Okay, I'm third. Believe me, if you come to me and tell me, Chris, such and such did this, just know what my answer is going to be, then go talk to him. You go talk to him, Chris, not my job. I'm third on the list. You know about it, you heard about it, you saw it, you witnessed it, guess whose job it is to go? You, not me. I'll get involved, but I'm going to get involved in third on the list. Just know that. And if you don't like that, deal with Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Don't deal with me. Deal with Matthew. Deal with the Lord, actually. These are red letters. These are extra important. Red letters. Those black letters are optional. Red letters. Uh-oh. No, it's all red letters. 
In the grand scheme of things, they're all red. And again, but, but the, the circle will expand. And why do we do this? To put the pressure on this person to come back. For all of us to go after this person, to bring them back. Why? Because we're all affected. Every single one of us are affected by each other's sin. This is a church issue. Guess what? We're going to make it a church issue. And lastly, if he does not respond to the church, you remove him from fellowship. That's exactly what Paul says here in verse 11. Remove him from fellowship. And, and this is not unique. If you look at, right, they're on your handouts, we're not going to look at them for sake of time. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14 through 16, Paul removed believers. You can see them there. Paul removed, Matthew's too good, he's too quick. Can't get around him back there. Thank you, Matthew. He says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. He says, stay away from them. Why? Because they're going to infect you. And, and do not, do not cheapen grace by refusing to force people who have supposedly taken hold of that grace to not live up to the lifestyle that comes with that grace. Why? Because their lifestyle impacts the whole church. When we cheapen grace and when we take advantage of grace and when we abuse grace, you're affecting the whole church. And that's what he says in 9 through 13. We've already read it. And the key objective, again, is to keep the circle as closed as possible. It's to clear it up as soon as possible. It's to bring the person back to full status in the body of Christ as soon as possible. The goal is always reconciliation. It's not to prove your point. It's not to point out sin. It's not to get one up. It's reconciliation. You can go to Luke 15, you can go to Luke 16. Jesus gives the illustration of a lost sheep. He gives the illustration of a lost coin. He gives the illustration of a lost son. He gives the illustration of, a, of lost accounts. The point of all of that is reconciliation. He wants to be reconciled to his children. He wants to be reconciled to the world. Sin has, has distanced us, it has separated us, and God has come to reconcile us. 2 Corinthians 5, we have been given the ministry, it says, of reconciliation. But listen to me. At the same time, we've got to be willing to confront. We have to be willing to forgive the moment they repent. Because some, sometimes we're real eager to confront. And then they repent. And guess what we do? We don't restore them. We won't forgive them. We want to judge. We want to judge their for Oh, it's not really real. Oh, well, they did eh. If they repent, guess what we do? We forgive. The moment they repent, we forgive. We must want, we must want them to repent. Please hear me. Sometimes it's sin in our lives. We want more to point out fault than we want them to repent. We must want them to repent. And listen to me. Every single one of us in here, when you read this word every day, you are being disciplined. I am being disciplined every single day when I open this word. I read this word, hopefully every day. I'm not perfect at it. I I'm, I'm fall short many days. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He says, Chris, this attitude you've been holding is unbiblical. This, this, this thought you had, that's not right. That's sin. 
This desire that you have, Chris, it's sin. This such and such, it doesn't line up. Every single day when I open this word, you know what the God is, the Holy Spirit is doing through my life? Disciplining me. You know why, you know why I, I love to teach Bible studies all throughout the week? It's because it forces me to stay in the word because I know my tendency is to wander away. That every time I open up this word of God, the Holy Spirit is just sculpting and sculpting and carving junk out of my life. Every day, this word disciplines me when I read it. Every single one of us in here are under discipline every single day. And the bottom line is this. I've got to love God more than I love my sin. I've got to love God more than my sin. And the purity of this church is our goal. It's not our growth. Look, a healthy organism will what? Naturally grow. A healthy child naturally grows, does it not? Yes. But you start introducing some stuff into that body that's impure and it stunts his growth. A healthy, build, a healthy body is going to grow. But, but don't allow us to lose our credibility and ability to, to share the gospel by how we live and refuse to deal with sin. The credibility of the gospel is damaged if we're living lives that are, at, that are just opposite of this word. And, and hear me. What, what we see here, what, what we see here is, is our first priority as a church is to live a life that is counter-cultural. It's to live a life that's more about God's word than the ways of this world. The world is watching. Our, our job as Christians is not to impose our standards on the world. It is to live a life according to those standards and let the world see it and then us answer to why we're living according to the way we're living. It's to judge ourselves. And, and what we see here in church discipline is a picture of the gospel. Please hear that. My sin, your sin, had separated us from fellowship with God. And what did God do? He sent His Son into the world. He, he pursued us. He chased after us at tremendous cost. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At the very point of the height of our sin, God sent His Son to die for us. That's, that's church discipline. I'm sending, I'm going after you with the love of Jesus. It's the picture of the gospel. Why? Because in your sin, the punishment is hell. It is eternal death. In Christ, there is forever forgiveness, totally. That's the gospel. And God never stops pursuing us, so why would we ever stop pursuing one another? It never stops pursuing us. Christ died not only to take away the penalty of sin, but to destroy the power of sin. An, an unbeliever out there has no recourse to not sin. They're going to sin. Believers have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to sin. Will we? We will struggle. But I pray it's a struggle. We don't have to sin. Greater is in you that is in the world. That's the gospel. The gospel is God saying, turn away from your sin and turn to my son. Church discipline is saying, turn away from your sin and turn back to the son who saved you. That's, that's loving. Nobody would say God was mean. 
in giving up his son for us. He did that out of love. Me going to you and you coming to me or whoever else it, and, 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 and begging them to come back is love. Don't, don't let the world tell you otherwise. It's love. And I pray that we would be a church who utterly despises sin so much that we can't help but go after people when they turn away. That we would love this word so much that we can't help but go after one another when they turn away. That we would not fall prey to the world just saying, well, that's their life, or you know what, dot, dot, dot. No, 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 it's a, it's a violation of the word. It violates the word. We're going to go after them. And I pray that we would do it as the Bible lays out, not on our own, not according to our own wants, but that we would do it according to the word of God. And we would do it lovingly and we would do it wisely with the purity of this gospel and this body and mind.